This is VLX number 106, His Face Shone Like the Sun. We are in Matthew chapter 17, just verses 1 and 2 and 3. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, the only patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. You might notice that there's a new background right here. I'm in my van. Sorry, it's been a little bit since we've done a normal VLX. I was doing a, uh, or I was at a fundraiser for Christians in the Middle East, among other things, in the southwest and west of the United States. Found a way to write and record on the road, and today we are in the Transfiguration. This is the mobile mission unit you see in the back that you help fund that I will explain another time. We will now pray and begin the Transfiguration. God give you his peace and omnipotent safety, speedy to santi, amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In omnipotent safety, speedy to santi, amen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Okay, so you might have noticed I only chose three verses today. Three verses in the Transfiguration. Why did I do this? Well, I think that we want to look at this contemplatively before we hear Peter talking and other things that happen in the rest of the Transfiguration, which we will do in VLX 107. So today, VLX 106 is the first half of the Transfiguration. You might remember the church gives us this reading in Lent. It was a little bit earlier in Lent, if you're listening to this in 2022. But the church gives us the Transfiguration in Lent to remind us of the coming glory as we meditate on the horrors of the crucifixion. And that's why it's occasionally good in even Lent to meditate on something comforting like this. Or really, we are called to meditate on the Transfiguration anytime outside of Lent, as we see these readings in the old calendar every August too. I think the new calendar also. But we will see from the Church Fathers this literally took place on August 6th, the last year of Jesus' life on earth, as we're about to hear from the Fathers. So we are in Matthew 17 today. And remember, from a few VLXs ago, we looked at that last verse of Matthew 16. Listen to that again. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That was Christ's words as recorded by St. Matthew. Now, modernist heretical Bible scholars say Matthew was trying to ramp up the early Christians for the apocalypse with this line, and oh, he was wrong since Jesus didn't return in glory for the early Christians. But we saw in our VLX on Matthew 16, we saw that Father Lapide gave us a very different reason. Basically, Father Lapide shows us that the transfiguration, when Jesus took those three apostles up, well, this was him showing his glory already. We are about to see this was, in fact, not just Jesus with, I don't know what people would say, with his batteries on high or something, but literally the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So that line, that last line of Matthew 16 of St. Matthew, it's per perfectly fulfilled already in the Transfiguration. Again, listen to that. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the Transfiguration was the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, the beginning of it. In fact, the Fathers say, as we'll see, that the Transfiguration was not Jesus just turning up his power, but was actually, get this, it was actually his status quo. 
and that the rest of his life he was actually hiding his glory. Now that's not docetism. Docetism is that heresy where Jesus just appears to be human, but he's not. No, Christ was a divine person who was 100% human, but all through his life, except the transfiguration, he kept his glory from shining through, except today, except today in the transfiguration. Now, let me say that again, uh, because this is really important for the rest of the day. The fathers say, as we're about to see, that the transfiguration was not Jesus turning up his power, but that the transfiguration of terrifying glory was actually Christ's own baseline status or status quo, and that the rest of his life was hiding this glory so as to live a relatively human life, a human life but without sin, of course. Okay, and so that first verse says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now most of the fathers agree that is Mount Tabor, of course, still there in Israel. You know, I've been up Mount Tabor, and being from Colorado, it's, it's what we would call a, foot, a foothill. I'm not being arrogant about it, just number-wise, it's what we would call a foothill. Uh, Height-wise, I should say. But there is still something glorious about it today. Uh, now, if you're doing the imaginative way of prayer, here's my suggestion. Just pretend like you are Peter or James or John. You are invited to go up. Imagine the privilege of this, but pretend you don't know what's going to happen yet. Just spend some time on the actual invitation of Christ inviting you to go somewhere where the other nine aren't even invited. It's this sunny day with no clouds, and you just ask yourself, where are we going? You get a good look at Jesus' face as he invites you, and I don't know, maybe this is three hours before the transfiguration, you set it up. But even before then, even before the transfiguration, Jesus looks at you, and you look at his face, and you notice the glory and beauty in his face even three hours before the transfiguration. You might remember in Mark's Gospel, it says Christ looked at a rich man, but he didn't just look at him. It says specifically in Mark's Gospel, he looked at him with love. So I'm going to ask you to picture that. At this invitation, Jesus looks at you with love and invites you. Remember, there's nothing overly sentimental about saying that because this is in the Bible. And as we talked about in the last VLX, every word in the Bible is inerrant. So see this in the invitation today. Maybe spend some time, as I said, just on that invitation of Christ looking at you and inviting you. But then, what you will hear from the fathers on the rest of this VLX, even if you're doing the imaginative way of mental prayer, notice it says James and John were brothers. So picture maybe Jesus taking Peter up there, and then you and then literally your blood brother or blood sister. And again, don't think that uh, this stuff isn't allowed because the prayer method of St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila allow this type of stuff. So I'm not calling outside the lines for traditionalists here. Okay, but from now on, today's VLX, the imaginative people should use the Bible study from the, uh, the patristics because I think they're going to benefit a lot from the study method, even if you're doing the imaginative way. And of course, as always, whether you're doing the apophatic way or the cataphatic way of prayer, I do suggest once you finish this podcast, turn your phone off, put it in airplane mode, and then do 15 minutes or 30 minutes of your own prayer. And since it's been a few weeks since we've had a normal VLX, sometimes people say, well, what do I do on the days off? And granted, this was a long time. My suggestion, especially for Lent, is to meditate on the Passion. And my two favorite books on that is Blessed Catherine Emmerich and St. Alphonsus Liguori. They both have tremendous words to guide us into the Passion. So that's the best thing to meditate on when you're not doing this VLX series. So you might have noticed the first few words of Matthew 17 today is, after six days. 
This is just a reference to the end of Matthew 16 that took place in Caesarea Philippi and the arrival to Mount Tabor. And these six days were filled with Jesus preaching on these villages on the way. You can still find those two places on a map. Maps today, Caesarea Philippi in the north, and then south, I think it's southwest of that, is Mount Tabor. Now, if you're looking, sometimes people like to compare the different transfiguration accounts, and Luke chapter 9 says it was eight days. This is one of those things where the modernist Bible scholar is going to say, oh, see, they didn't coordinate, they're lying, and they just didn't coordinate it the right way. St. Jerome has a very simple answer. According to Father Lapide, quote, the solution is simple because in St. Matthew, the intervening days are given in St. Luke, there is an addition of the first and the last day. So it was just a difference in counting. Luke, it was, it was actually eight days, but the first and last days, the bookends, were included by Luke, and they weren't included by Matthew. See, anytime we think there's a mistake in the Bible, there's often a very simple uh, solution. Okay, now, what is this sixth day that was referred to? Um, another reason that Father Lapide gives us, he says the second reason for the delay, in other words, the delay between discussing Peter as Pope and how every Christian has to take up their cross and arriving at Tabor for the, the Transfiguration, there was a six-day period in between there, was, according to Father Lapide, quote, because Christ wished to be transfigured on Mount Tabor, which is 20 leagues or hours distant from Caesarea Philippi. Christ, therefore, journeying slowly according to his custom, occupied six days in preaching in the villages and country intervening. Rabanus gives us a third and mystical reason that it might be signified that the future resurrection, of which the transfiguration was a type or symbol, should take place after the six ages of the world. St. Hilary gives a fifth chronological reason. The glory of the Lord after six days, he says, prefigures the honor of the kingdom of heaven after the passage of an interval of 6,000 years. For it is the opinion of many fathers and doctors that the world shall last for 6,000 years, and then the judgment will take place, as I have said in the commentary on the Apocalypse. So, Adam and Eve and the rest of creation happened in 4,000 B.C., and a little bit scary, we are now around 2,000 A.D., so that comes to exactly 6,000 years uh, since Adam and Eve, and that is when many of the fathers think the Apocalypse takes place. Now let's look at the patristic theology of the Transfiguration specifically. This is, this is amazing. Bhagavad says that although he suffered and died upon the cross, his deity neither suffered nor died. By this, they would understand that he did not undergo death on a cross out of weakness or compelled by necessity, but rather of his own free will, deigning in charity to redeem mankind. And he who could communicate so great a glory to his body here was likewise able to rescue that body from death, if he so willed. Here, St. John Damascene, on his Sermon on the Transfiguration, he took Peter, wishing to show him that the testimony which he had borne was confirmed by the testimony of the Father, and because he was about to become the president of the whole church. He took James because he was about to die for Christ, John because he was, as it were, the most pure instrument of theology, that beholding the glory of the Son of God, which is not subject to time, he might declare, in the beginning was the Word. So Peter was chosen to go up the mountain because he was the first pope, James because of his martyrdom, and John because of the purity of his body, mind, soul, and purity of his theology especially. Now why were they taken up to this high mountain apart? It says in the Latin and the Greek, in into a high mountain apart. Remigius says, 
that it was necessary for all who desire to contemplate God that they must not wallow in groveling pleasures, but by things of love above must be lifted up to heaven. Now, why Tabor? And as we look at Tabor, this should be um, this should help you in both the apophatic way, which is the study way of prayer, and the cataphatic way, which is the imaginative way of prayer. Tabor is exceedingly salubrious. That's according to Father Lapidus. Salubrious just means salvific, and in this case, salvific to the body, not just the soul. Tabor is exceedingly salubrious. It is planted all over with vines, olives, and various sorts of fruit, fruit-bearing and other trees. It is always verdant with constant dews, with the foliage of trees and very colored grasses, and it is always fragrant with the color of all kinds of flowers. There is there a vast concourse of wild animals, especially birds, who make delicious melody with their songs, and it is famous for hunting. So again, this, this flies in the face of how many of these modern movies always put Jesus in the desert. There is a desert in the Middle East, but it's not the entire part of Palestine. Father Lapide continues, Symbolically, Tabor in Hebrew is the same as bed of purity and light. Ta means bed, and bet, ta means bed, or light, and the letter Beth in the, in the middle signifies in, thus it means the bed in light, that is, of light. St. Jerome gives another meaning. Tabor, he says, means the coming light, because in Tabor, Christ established the bedchamber of his glory and splendor. And then Father Lapide brings in the same section of the Transfiguration in Luke 9.28. He says, Christ went up into a mountain to pray, and whilst he prayed, the shape of his countenance was altered. Father Lapide says this was that he might show us the fruit of prayer. Namely, that in prayer we are suffused with heavenly light and are, as it were, transfigured, and instead of earthly are made celestial and divine, and instead of men become angels. Now let's take a look here at Moses in Exodus 34. You know, um, before looking more at Matthew 17, I want you to listen to two paragraphs of Moses' own, we'll call it partial receiving of God's glory on a mountain. This is from Exodus 34 in the Old Testament. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them, All that the Lord has spoken with him in Mount Sinai, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Okay, now let's repeat those last few verses from today's short section on Matthew 17, the Transfiguration but still a lot to hear from the church fathers after that. St. Matthew writes, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So basically what we can picture here is three normal men on a mountain, Peter, James, and John, staring at three men in glory, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Let's hear what the fathers have to say now. The first thing to notice is that the English word transfigured in Greek is actually metamorphothē, 
Metamorphothe is obviously the root word that we have in English of metamorphosize. What does this really mean? Well, St. Augustine tells us, quote, As the divinity shone outwardly through the flesh, so also the flesh being illuminated by the divinity was radiant through his garments. Father Lapide adds on top of this, Therefore, like the sun, the transfiguration was golden and magnificent, elegant and marvelously refreshing to the eyes. And since this splendor was perfect, it did not take away from his apostles the sight of Christ's face from which it shone. In this it was different from our light, for instance, of the sun, which both refreshes and dulls the sense of light. Now that's pretty amazing. What Father Lapide is basically saying there is, this would be like being close up to the sun, but without any pain in your eyes. And what does this mean Christ was actually doing? As I said earlier, the status quo was actually the transfiguration. Him going through the rest of life was hiding his glory, or at least keeping it tamponated down. This is what Father Lapide says. He says, nevertheless, in order that Christ might suffer and have his conversation or lifestyle among men, this glory and all the other gifts just mentioned were repressed, as it were, in the beatified soul of Christ for the remainder of his earthly life. Father Lapide continues, this is beautiful. This repression, therefore, is a miracle, and the cessation of this repression in the transfiguration and the usual emanation of the interior splendor into the body of Christ was the cessation of a miracle. But to men it seemed to be a miracle because it was new and they were ignorant of the cause. Therefore, Christ possessed this glory of his body by right, by a double title, namely, by the hypostatic union and by the beatific state of his soul. In the third place, he had, it, he had gained it by the title of merit, for by so many sufferings and labors he merited this glory of his body, and at his resurrection he received it in perpetuity. St. John Damascene adds in his Sermon on the Transfiguration that Christ's body always possessed this glory, although it was hidden from the apostles, but that in the Transfiguration he manifested it. Then we talked a little bit earlier about the dates. Father Lapide says, lastly, the Transfiguration happened on the 6th of August, on which day the Church commemorates it each year. Others agree that it took place in the 33rd year of Christ's life, which was the third and last of his preaching. For the following year, as Passover was beginning, he was crucified on the 25th of March. Now, I've heard two dates for his crucifixion, the 25th of March and the 3rd of April. Now let's look at why Christ was transfigured. Why did this happen? Father Lapide gives us four reasons. First, that he might prove his divinity to his apostles. Secondly, so his disciples might not lose confidence. Thirdly, to represent that he shall come after this manner with great power and majesty to judge the world. Fourthly, so the rest of the faithful could undergo bravely for the sake of the gospel whatever trials and crosses might come. And then he also adds these words from St. John Chrysostom. These are pretty striking. St. John Chrysostom comments on this passage, adds that the least of the blessed in heaven has greater brightness and glory than Christ did here because Christ tempered his glory to suit the feeble eyes and the capacity of the apostles who were as yet mortal. That's pretty amazing. That's quite a meditation on heaven. Just to think about it, that you will look better than Christ at the transfiguration. I would say, I would have never said that if Chrysostom had not said that. St. John Chrysostom just said that, that we're going to be shining with greater glory in heaven than Christ at the transfiguration. Pretty amazing stuff. Let me read that again. And St. John Chrysostom commenting on this passage 
adds that the least of the blessed in heaven has greater brightness and glory than Christ did here, because Christ tempered his glory to suit the feeble eyes and the capacity of the apostles who were as yet mortal. So St. John Chrysostom obviously doesn't mean that any of us will have the glory of Christ's divinity, even when Christ was on earth, just probably the visual of it all uh, will, be, will be greater. Okay, St. Francis of Assisi used to say, So great is the glory which I expect, that every kind of affliction is delightful to me. Then we also read that there were, there were basically four transformations of how Jesus looked in his life on earth and his life in the church. It's very interesting. Notice um, that even though Father Lapide uses the word transfiguration, there might be a little bit of a problem in the translation there. So I'm just going to call it uh, four transformations of how Jesus is seen by men. So the first is Christ was four times, or sorry, Father Lapide said Christ was four times transfigured. Again, I'm going to say that was just visual transformations. The first, the first is his incarnation. The secondly is on the cross. For we heard in Isaiah 53, 2, there is no beauty in him nor comeliness, and we have seen him and there was no sightliness. Number three is the resurrection when he was crowned with glory and honor. And number four, this is a bit of a showstopper, in the Eucharist where he lies hidden under the species of bread and wine and seems to be, as it were, transfigured into them. And one more quote on what prayer does for us. St. Francis of Assisi, when he prayed, was lifted up on high, often to the height of fig trees, indeed up to the clouds, as though he were going to ascend to God, and he could speak, think of, and love nothing else save God. My God and all, he would say, grant me, O Lord, to die for love of thy love, thou who didst deign to die for love of my love. This is where St. Paul says, But we all, beholding the glory of the Lord with open, unveiled face, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And now if you're doing the imaginative way of prayer, it's good to picture Christ actually transfigured before you. Father Lapide helps with this too. He says, And this refulgence by the operation of God flowed forth, as it were, from the flesh of Christ into his garments, as happens with glorified bodies, and thus prevailed over, as it were, swallowed up their natural color, if it were not white originally, so that it would no longer appear. Therefore this glory in the face and body of Christ was golden and shifting as in the sun, and when it was transfused to his clothes, it became white, as the moon appears to be white when illuminated by the sun's rays, and the sun itself appears white when it shines through the clouds. But this is what Luke means when he says his raiment became white and glittering in Greek like lightning, darting rays like lightning. Hence it is plain that there was in the garments of Christ not only whiteness like snow, but a brightness like lightning. And now we can just finish with this question, why were Moses and Elijah there? Father Lapide says because Moses was the legislator of the old law and Elias, same as Elijah, was the prince of prophecy and of the prophets. Therefore, he represents the whole choir of the prophets. These two appeared then, that they might show that Christ was the true Messiah, the Savior of the world, whom he himself had promised in the law and the prophets. By Moses, the law is shown to harmonize with Christ and prophesy by Elias or Elijah, and that both, having accomplished their work, were ended and had given place to Christ as the new lawgiver and prophet sent from God, and promised by all the prophets, but especially by Moses, in these words, from Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, I will raise them up a prophet out of the midst of their brethren like to thee, and I will put my hands in his mouth. Thus say, 
St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Ambrose. St. Jerome adds that Moses and Elias merited this vision because, like Christ, they had fasted 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the third part of the Summa, question 45, article 3, he gives six other reasons, if you want to keep listening, six other reasons why Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah. One, because the multitudes, or the crowds, said that Christ was Elias, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Therefore he took the chief of the prophets with him, so that the difference between the master and the servants might be plainly evident. Okay, what that means is not that the Jews thought Jesus was a reincarnation of the prophets, but if you remember from a previous VLX we talked about, many of the Jews thought that one of the prophets had not died and was still alive in Jesus, or that he was Jesus but had never died. Jesus taking Moses and Elijah shows these are different people. might sound pretty basic to us, but you have to remember the Jews understood that certain certain prophets didn't die. And we as Catholics believe Elijah never died, as we're about to get to. So it wasn't a totally crazy idea for them to think he could be Elijah. Okay, number two, because Moses gave the law and Elias was jealous for the glory of the Lord. Jealous just means zealous. Elijah was jealous for the glory of the Lord. Since therefore they appeared with Christ, they excluded the calumny of the Jews, that Christ was a blasphemer of the law, and that he usurped to himself the glory of God. In other words, this is showing that Christ has, has come to fulfill the Old Testament, not do away with it. Number three, Christ showed in the transfiguration that he had the power of life and death and is the judge of the living and the dead because he had with him Moses who was dead and Elias who was alive. Number four, because as Luke says, they spoke of his decease that he should accomplish in Jerusalem. That's just the uh, Dewey Rhymes deceased, but it's actually Exodus in Greek, that is, of his passion and death, therefore that he might, in reference to this, strengthen the minds of his disciples, he brings before them those who had exposed themselves to death for God's sake. For Moses presented himself before Pharaoh at the perils of his life, as Elijah did before King Ahab. Number five, Christ did the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, because he wished his disciples to imitate the meekness of Moses and the zeal of Elias. And finally, number six, Hillary adds, because Christ would show that he was preached both by the law which Moses gave and the prophets among whom Elias was the chief. Now, you might have noticed I just mentioned that Elijah was alive, and amazingly, we actually hold he still is alive in some paradise. Now you will ask, says Father Lapide, how and in what manner did Moses and Elias appear? It is agreed by all that it was Elias himself who appeared in his own body, for Elias was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. He's talking about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Elias was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire and is still alive. Isn't that amazing? We traditional Catholics believe he's still alive and that he will come again and contend with the Antichrist. From paradise, therefore, or from the place to which he was translated, he was suddenly transferred by an angel to Mount Tabor, that he might be an interlocutor and witness to Christ in his transfiguration. Okay, so Elias, Elijah is alive. Moses obviously died and was buried near Mount Nebo. So Father Lapide now says, With respect to Moses, there are various opinions which I have reviewed at the last chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 5. It is certain, he says, as I have shown, that Moses is dead and has not yet risen again. Okay, so you might wonder, how did Moses get there? Very simple answer. Well, it's complex, but I'll just give you one sentence. Father Lapide says, The soul of Moses 
was translated from limbo by an angel to earth. And when Moses arrived there, he came to Tabor to Christ and assumed a body. And then let's notice, you know, I did say you had three people appearing in glory, but it wasn't their glory. The glory of Moses and Elijah is the is a partition, par participation in Yahweh's glory, and Jesus is Yahweh. So Father, La Father Lapide says, Note then that Christ breathed out and communicated his glory and splendor to Moses and Elias, just as he did to his garments. Therefore, Luke 9, 30 and 31 says, And they, Moses and Elias, were appearing in his majesty, his referring to Christ. All of this is Yahweh who equals the Trinity, the Trinity's glory, and Moses and Elias are appearing in that. Peter, James, and John are seeing the glory of the Blessed Trinity, the glory of Yahweh, and Jesus is Yahweh. Please say an hour, Father, for me. Et benedictio Deum omnipotentis patris et spiritus sancti, descendit super vos, et maniat semper. Amen.